Well, much like an overlooked gift at the bottom of a gift bag, there's a truth tucked inside the Christmas narrative that often goes undetected. And I hope to change that today. I hope to unwrap that, that truth. And towards that end, I want to consider two passages. One of them gets occasional mention this time of the year, and the other is rarely mentioned at all, and that's unfortunate. Because just as all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is tied to the cross of Christ, so all of Scripture is tied to the incarnation of Christ. The story of the incarnation doesn't begin in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It began in Genesis, in the opening lines of God's Word. The opening lines of Scripture reveal why the incarnation was necessary and how God ingeniously laid the foundation for that event before the world was formed. The rest of the Old Testament reveals how God patiently guided the process through a whole series of roadblocks and detours and setbacks and human foolishness and human failures. Then the Gospels detail the particulars of Jesus' arrival, and the rest of the New Testament shares the ripple effects of His coming, including His second coming. So all of Scripture is tied to the Incarnation. And for that reason today, I want to look at two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. The Old Testament passage is Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, whichever you prefer, Chapter 2, verse 3. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. The New Testament passage is Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law and that we might receive the adoption as sons. Today I hope to point out to you that the account of Jesus' birth is actually a parable of two gifts. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments you know that I cannot faithfully discharge my calling and I cannot faithfully preach your truth on my own. I desperately need the enabling and the empowering of your Holy Spirit. I count on it every time I have the privilege of teaching your truth. And Father, we all know <clears throat> that we can't possibly see everything that you want us to see on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. And then we need the Holy Spirit to give us the courage and the faith to apply what we've learned. So today, as always, I pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. In this never-to-be-repeated moment in history, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in us as it is in heaven. And we pray that in Jesus' name. 
Amen. And amen. And as we listen for God's voice this Christmas Eve Sunday, may the Lord be with you. When I was a child, my family observed several important traditions at Christmas. Like many of you, one of those traditions included a mid-afternoon meal for our entire extended family, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles. And I remember once all of the dishes had been carefully prepared and carefully set on the table, it was time for another annual Christmas tradition, my father's reading of the Christmas narrative. Dad would pull the little pocket New Testament from his sport coat inside pocket, the little pocket New Testament that he used almost daily as he shared his faith with others. And he would turn to Luke's account of the birth of Christ, Luke chapter 2, and he would read it in its entirety, all 20 verses. Now, I understood Dad's motive. He wanted us to remember what we were celebrating and why we were celebrating. But have you noticed understanding and patience don't always walk hand in hand? And as an impatient young man, I always found it difficult to wait for Dad to complete the reading before diving into the meal. Dad was reading the tale of something that happened in the past. The aroma of roast beef was crying out to me in the present. Dad read about Jesus' name, but the mashed potatoes and gravy were calling out my name. So those 419 words in King James English seemed like war and peace or at least Psalm 119. And then Dad would follow it up predictably with a long, impassioned prayer. He didn't just thank God for the incarnation. He didn't just thank God for the meal we were about to share. He had his devotions. He prayed for missionaries around the world by name. He prayed for the revival of God's church. He prayed for the lost in our neighborhood. And many times as he got going, my mother would clear her throat even though there wasn't anything in her throat that needed to be cleared. She would give a little... <clears throat> and, and we knew what she was saying, Howard... The food's getting cold. Will you wrap this up? Okay. Now, looking back, my emotions in those moments at the table were a bit of a reminder of what God's people experienced for much of history as they awaited the fulfillment of the promise of a Messiah. God had given that promise centuries earlier, and they were left to wait in eager anticipation, but their eager anticipation kept running headlong into a waiting period that must have felt like forever. I mean, it was literally thousands of years 
But it must have felt even longer than that. Generation after generation after generation lived and prayed and waited and died without seeing the promise fulfilled. And their experience has something to say to us, something that we need to hear, but something that generally isn't learned in just one hearing. Their experience reminds us that God's good gifts sometimes appear to clash. Now notice I said they appear to clash. The reality is otherwise, even though it's not always immediately obvious, even to the eyes of faith. The reality is the two gifts of eager anticipation and patient waiting are never in conflict. They only appear to be in conflict when they're distorted. When one or both of those gifts leaves the rails of truth. When one or both of those gifts morphs into something other than what God intended. Let me explain. The gift of eager anticipation was meant to create a sense of need in our souls and to instigate a search. It was meant to draw us to God, our loving Creator. That's why Scripture records reminders like, as the deer pants for water, our souls thirst for God. That's why Scripture records invitations like, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why Scripture records promises like, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Eager anticipation is a wonderful gift from God. But like any of God's good gifts, the gift of eager anticipation can be poisoned by lies and compromised by sin. And when that happens, the gift of anticipation becomes something else. It becomes something ugly. It becomes lust. Now, I know we tend to think of lust as only having to do with sexuality, but the term covers much more than that. What's the difference between eager anticipation and lust? It's simple. Anticipation is willing to wait for the good that God has promised. Lust demands the good immediately. And in so doing, it not only forfeits the good, it settles for counterfeits. Now, it didn't take long after creation for eager anticipation to morph into lust. When God created Adam and Eve, He gifted them with eager anticipation of knowing Him intimately, of understanding the wonderful universe in which He had placed them, of knowing truth, of knowing reality. But they shunned the gift of patient waiting. They didn't like God's syllabus. They didn't like God's class schedule. They didn't like God's schedule for learning full truth. They wanted full understanding, and they wanted it immediately. So they took a shortcut. And when they took the shortcut, they ended up with a counterfeit. Instead of understanding, they got deception. And it didn't stop there. They passed their inclination 
down to us. You see, impatience is in the spiritual DNA of fallen humanity. We are, by virtue of our fallen condition, very impatient creatures. That's why our culture is infested with a lust for immediate gratification. We're obsessed with shortcuts. We want rock-hard six-pack abs in 15 minutes a day and a total investment of one month of time. Constructive waiting isn't valued. The truth is it's barely tolerated. We buy on credit rather than saving. We insist on sexual intimacy before we've erected the housing of covenant. We demand leadership without apprenticeship. As a culture, we want destinations. We're not interested in journeys. We eat our apples when they're green and hard and bitter because we can't wait for them to get red and ripe and juicy. And we learn far too late, if we learn at all, that the lust that demands gratification forfeits joy. And that's why God never gives the gift of eager anticipation by itself. He always couples it with the gift of patient waiting. And that gift, like the gift of anticipation, has a strategic purpose. The gift of patient waiting was meant to increase our understanding of God and our trust in God. It was also meant to draw us to God. But like its partner, it too can be compromised by lies and by sin. And when it's compromised, it morphs into resignation. What's the difference? Patience sees God's goodness in his delays. Resignation sees betrayal. It doubts God's love. It doubts God's faithfulness. It doubts God's care. It doubts God's wisdom. It embraces bitterness and anger and despair. It loses hope. Sadly, it does all of that despite more than enough evidence to the contrary. Because Scripture records ample evidence that God, while He makes us wait, never fails to fulfill His promises. Yes, he allowed Noah and his family to drift on waters for a year without saying anything. But at the end of the year, their instructions came. Yes, he allowed Abraham to wait for 25 years after he promised him a son. But Isaac came. He allowed Joseph to experience slavery and even prison for 17 years before his promotion to power in Egypt, but his promotion came. He made Moses wait for 40 years of his people suffering before he could lead them out in the Exodus, but Moses led them out in the Exodus. And he made humanity wait thousands of years for the Messiah, but as our presence here today attests, the Messiah arrived. In each case, God kept His promise, and in each case, the waiting period revealed God's wisdom. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians when he said, in the fullness of time, 
Centuries before Jesus' arrival, the ancient prophet Daniel told us when the Messiah would be coming. He said, from the time of the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem till the day of the Messiah's death would be exactly 483 years. Now, if you compute the time period between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the day when Jesus died, you want to guess how many years it was? 483 years. How could Daniel have prophesied that if God wasn't with him? See, it takes more blind faith to disbelieve Scripture than to believe it. Why did God wait those 483 years when they had already been waiting for over a thousand? Well, there was numerous reasons, but the primary reason, oddly enough, who would have seen this? The primary reason was the Roman method of execution, crucifixion. You see, in order to be the substitute for our sins and our failures, Jesus had to be without sin himself. But if Jesus died without sin, it would violate the perfect justice of God. So way back in the Old Testament, as you're plodding through some of those hard-to-read passages, you come across literally a little parenthesis that says, and cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then it just moves on. And you think, what's that all about? And then centuries later, you find out that by being placed on that tree, Christ became cursed for us, though he was without sin, and God's perfect justice was left intact. Now, only God can think of stuff like that, which is why I say he's borderline genius. And you see, the eyes of faith can see what God was up to looking back. But I want to remind you, generation after generation died without the privilege that we have of looking back. They had to couple their eager anticipation with patient waiting. But in the fullness of time, which means when everything was just right, God's love, God's genius became apparent. God will not betray his promises. His delays are not denials. What is it that God wants to teach us when he makes us wait? Many things, but here's the primary one. God wants to teach us that what we really desire is already with us, not ahead of us. Because our hearts hunger for God. And he has arrived. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. See, if you think of the joy that you hunger for as something ahead of you that you haven't yet arrived at, you've got to miss the fact that it's already with you and available to you in the Messiah. That's why God doesn't leap into action the first time he sees us fidgeting. It's why he doesn't answer our every misguided prayer. It's why he rarely answers our prayers immediately. It's why he asks us to patiently wait. God uses delays to help us recognize our real hunger so that we can renounce the empty fillers 
that leave us spiritually malnourished. He wants us to learn what it is we're really hungering and thirsting for so that we don't accept counterfeits. Counterfeits like possessions, positions, popularity, or the illusion of power. So by now I hope you see why I suggest the story of Jesus' arrival is a parable. Parable of two complementary gifts. One creates the hunger for what we really need, and the other increases our enjoyment and satisfaction when that thing finally arrives. And the two gifts taken together remind us that the best thing you can do in your own interest is to trust an infinite God, an all-knowing, all-wise God who knows you better than you know yourself and loves you better than you love yourself. Now, what's the take-home? Because unless there's a take-home, I've just wasted about 18 minutes of your time. Well, maybe it was 20, I don't know. Let me suggest one take-home for those who are already followers of Jesus and one take-home for those who are not yet followers of Jesus. For those who are already followers of Christ, I would remind you that while we patiently wait, we need to be careful that we never lose the gift of eager anticipation. What am I talking about? We're in another God-ordained waiting period. We're no longer waiting for the first coming of Jesus. That's behind us. But we are waiting for the promised second coming of Jesus, and that will be fulfilled to the most tiniest detail, just as the prophecies of His first coming were fulfilled to the smallest detail. Now, I say we need to be careful that we don't lose our eager anticipation because I think we've lost it. When I was growing up in the church, I didn't have any interest in what was going on. I didn't come to faith till I was 20. But I did watch what was going on, and I noticed that my dad and his generation of believers were passionate about the second coming of Christ. They talked about it. They prayed about it. They look forward to it. But more importantly, they ordered their lives in light of that reality. You see, when you believe Jesus is returning, when you believe that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, when you believe that there is a payday someday, when you believe there is a final accounting, when you believe Jesus is going to return not as a child to die, but as a king to reign, when you believe that, you structure your life differently. You value different things. You prioritize things differently. From the bedroom to the boardroom, from what you do with your money to what you do with your time, you structure everything in light of the second coming so that when He returns, you can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I believe we've become so comfortable in this world of many conveniences that we don't long for Jesus coming like we used to. We acknowledge it. 
we don't anticipate it. And that's a loss on many levels. So if you're already a follower of Christ, let the parable of the two gifts remind you while you're patiently waiting, don't lose your eager anticipation because you lose much more than you can imagine. Now for those who aren't yet followers of Christ, the takeaway would be this. Don't waste this time of patient waiting. See, Jesus said he was coming back, and not long after he left, people had already, remember we're impatient, people had already began to say, begun to say, well, he's not coming back. It's been 20 years. It's been 30 years. It's been 40 years. He's not coming back. And God responded to that in Scripture by saying this, I don't have dementia. I know I'm old, but I don't have dementia. I'm not forgetful. There's a reason why I'm delaying my return, God said. It's because I want as many as possible to find me and come into the kingdom before I return. Because when I return, when I return, the door of opportunity slams shut. Then destinies are settled forever. So God said, I'm patiently waiting because I don't want anybody to miss it. I want everybody to find it. But he will not wait forever. Just as there was a day in the mind of God when Jesus was going to be born, there is a day when this world is going to be forced to sit up and take notice that the God it increasingly denies not only exists, but he has come back for his people, and he has come back for his property, and the rebellion is over. But until that day, the door of opportunity is open, and it would be foolish to pass on it, because two seconds after Jesus returns, you won't be able to say, wait a minute. No. So believers, don't lose the anticipation. If you're not yet a believer, don't waste the wait. Let's pray together. Let's let God do office work in hearts. If you're a believer and God has spoken to you that you've lost some of that anticipation. Why not use this Christmas to ask him to renew it? He can do that, and he'll gladly do that if you ask. If you've never come to Christ, as he's patiently waited, and he's spoken to you that you need to get in, you need to cross the threshold, not just to be prepared for eternity, but to experience the joy of the Lord now instead of those empty counterfeits that aren't working for you. And if he's spoken to you and you're ready, would you just, in the quietness of your heart, call upon him and say, Jesus, I believe you came and died and rose again so that I could be restored to the fullness of humanity. 
so that I could be connected to my Creator and live a life of purpose. Forgive my unbelief. Change my heart. I confess Jesus as my Lord. Father, just like a wise earthly father doesn't hand his six-year-old the car keys, you don't give us everything we anticipate immediately. You make us wait for our benefit. As we look back at Christmas and Jesus' first arrival, help us to combine anticipation and patience while we look forward to his next arrival. Because someday we'll be talking about that one in the past tense as well. And in the meantime, Help us to number our days, hold on to the anticipation, and not waste the wait. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.